I embraced the ocean. I immersed myself in the experience. I was allowed to move through it by combining everything that I had trained to do, everything that I knew how to do, the crew that I had with me, my wife who was on the boat the entire time. There was no conquering. There is no conquering a mountain. There is no conquering the ocean. We get to immerse ourselves in an experience that is bigger than us. And anyone who thinks that they conquer the biggest wave on the planet or they conquer the most challenging swim, that mindset goes against virtually everything that we work to do and inspire in the world. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Bruckner Chase. Bruckner is an internationally recognized ocean advocate and professional waterman. He's also an accomplished ultra-endurance athlete whose athletic career spans the most challenging events in water and on land. His 25-mile swim across Monterey Bay in 2010 launched both the Blue Ocean Film Festival and his own career committed to moving others to, to sustainable action that benefits our oceans. Prior to this commitment to bettering our oceans, Bruckner was a corporate executive who worked in international project and brand development for companies such as Abercrombie & Fitch and West Marine. Today, as founder and president of the Bruckner Chase Ocean Positive Nonprofit, him and his team designs, develops, and implements innovative and inspiring ocean adventures and programs that connect individuals and communities around the world to our oceans. His work has taken him all over the world, from the Jersey Shore to Poland and the American Samoa. In this interview, we get into how he's adjusted to the pandemic, how he went from almost drowning twice as a kid to becoming a passionate ocean advocate, his 25-mile Monterey Bay swim, and the awesome work he does with his nonprofit. And so, without further ado, my interview with Bruckner Chase. Thanks for coming on the show, Bruckner. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. It is a little bit odd, though, calling you by my last name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's a little, a little odd for sure. Well, after spending decades telling people, no, 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 really, that's my first name. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like it would be kind of flipped. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I've checked on to more than one international flight only to have them blow it because they couldn't find my reservation. I'm like, well, why don't you look it up under last name Chase? And they're like, oh, here you are. And I'm like, yes, here <laughs> I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. So that's as someone who usually travels pretty often, how have you been adjusting to life in the whole, in this whole like new COVID-19 environment? It's uh, it's a really good question. And how I'm adjusting is, probably like a lot of people having to kind of reinvent um, or get outside the box about how we accomplish certain things. I know that for my well-being, spirit and soul, I like being immersed in different communities and geographic areas, demographic areas. Not being able to do that is, it's, it's sad and I feel like I'm really missing that. I was supposed to be in Australia earlier this year. Um, typically I would be heading down to American Samoa. We 
you know, we're doing some work with some companies in, in Europe. And at this time of, in this time uh, in August, I was supposed to be up in Nova Scotia and Halifax. So I have gone, gone nowhere. In fact, I'm getting ready to do some outreach to some beach patrols on the East Coast for a Red Bull project. And I'm having to get in and out of a couple of the states without staying there because they're still under quarantine restrictions for New Jersey. Right. Yeah. So it's had a, had a big, big impact. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. It really has. And I think that a lot of what I really thrive on is, is getting people excited about what they're doing locally. And as anyone who has had multiple meetings on zoom or online, knows we we kind of are beginning to turn our brains off to that it's not like sitting down face to face my wife's a professor and the semester has just been exhausting trying to you know keep students engaged and moving forward when it's she literally has never met her students face to face and these are master's level students at, at penn and it's you know normally you'd be interacting with a professor interacting with students and with me um you know, the backdrop behind me is Aonu'u in American Samoa. Normally, okay. I'm, I'm sitting down with villagers. I'm sitting down with lifeguards, with community leaders. So it's, it's, really, it's, it's really tough. I think that we definitely anecdotally give up 20 or 30% of effectiveness and efficiency in not being able to do some stuff face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Are you able to still continue some of the, these projects over Zoom? Yeah, and actually, we, um, my professional career, I always was building plan B, C, and D. I mean, I had to have contingencies for things that could go wrong, you know, not getting product, not getting supplies, not getting access, not getting permits. I always was wired to something's going to go wrong. Where is that 10% going to pop up? And so this situation has really caused me to go back to some of my private sector um, experiences and go, okay, well, this isn't going to be able to happen. So we still want to keep moving forward. We still need to be financially sustainable. We still have a mission for communities and oceans. So what do I do? Because everything I had planned out the last quarter of last year, I was at an expo in Orlando in January and we were dialed. It was going to be an awesome year. We had great stakeholders and partners and community engagement and gone. I mean, I flew back from a, a canceled project in Austin, Texas, right as this was starting on March 3rd. And within seven days, everything was off. Yeah. And so we are, we did a, a webinar with Noah to get the message out on a series that we've got that was able to spin off into creating some new coastal safety signage that's gotten approved for weather service in NOAA with a really push for people staying more local and going to their local waterways and coastal areas. We have tried to find new ways to engage with people. Um, I normally serve as a technical director for this large Red Bull event that um, hosts professional athletes, ocean athletes, ocean lifeguards from the East Coast. We cannot do an event. We have to yeah. stay away from the name and, and the visuals and what it looks like. So really working with Red Bull to create a way to thank the ocean first responders that are under so much more pressure this year. And we've come up with a great way to support them and share information, bring together people. But I never would have been looking at that. That was never part of the plan and really had to 
create and build that out over a six to eight week period. So if you kind of, the sooner you kind of let go of what isn't going to happen, embrace the fact that there's still a lot of uncertainty and it's going to continue to evolve and roll with it. So I, I guess I kind of take, uh, my wife teaches scientific research methods. So I kind of take a, a scientific approach to even developing stuff out going, you know, what do we know? What are the parameters that we know we can work within? And then how do we build some flex into that and still, you know, measure what we want to achieve and, and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Have, long-winded response. Yeah. No, that's great. And how about for you, for you personally, in, in terms of adjusting to, uh, to COVID, like I know you're obviously, you love being around the ocean, being in yeah. the ocean. Are you still, still able to kind of do all the ocean activities, I guess, where you're living yeah. now? Yeah, actually. And, and the COVID, you know, I know a lot of people, maybe it's, I'm talking around it, trying to find the best way to describe it. I actually, with my physical training and, and physical well-being and even state of mind, actually thrived uh, in the early part of the COVID lockdowns in the first little bit. We were, you know, kind of quarantined, staying at home, but I live on an island that in the early spring is pretty much empty. And there were some local parks, wooded areas that, that stayed open um, because there weren't that many people around. I think that we were really lucky in not living in a major metropolitan area, that stuff was open to me. Even when beaches were closed, there were still private access points to get out on the water. I began this endurance life almost before there were races all over the place. I mean, when I was originally doing triathlons, you had to tell people how to spell the word. I mean, there wasn't, <laughs> you know, five races all the time. I fell into it because I love the training. I just love being outside. And while I've been doing, you know, mostly ocean and aquatic focused stuff, I was an ultra distance trail runner. And so I got back to doing that. And when I didn't go out, I was doing yoga at home. I've always had a, a pretty rigorous mindfulness meditation practice. And so I just simplified stuff. I, I would be two miles out in the ocean paddling. No one's around, uh, out on trails early in the morning. No one's there. So I, I, I consider myself lucky, but I also think that I was hardwired to adapt to this. I right. never, I love to compete and there are races that I had to give up. I was supposed to race internationally and it just isn't going to happen. But I've always been motivated by the experience, not necessarily a finisher's medal or a starting line or a finish line. So I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life, actually. Yeah. And that's a healthier way to, to approach it too, is not to associate yourself so strongly with the medal or the result or the outcome, but to just love the, love the training. Yeah. We train a lot of triathletes. One of the things I do feet in the sand here is we, we host ocean open water master swims every week. And we delayed those for a few weeks until the governor and the local municipality allowed us to have people out together but we were doing them on the beach in the ocean. It's very easy to spread apart. Once people are out on the ocean at their own speed and pace, they're separated and stuff. So it felt safe. It was in compliance with, with state, local, CDC, WHO. And I did notice though, a lot of, a lot of triathletes that really thrive on the camaraderie of the races and of the events themselves. 
really had to, you know, readjust and relook at the why behind what they what they were doing. And some people, I think, kind of said, "Well, this is just going to be my year off. I'm going to go pursue something completely different, other hobbies that may have nothing to do with endurance training." And others kind of said, "You know what?" this is the year I work on my swim, or this is the year I work on my run, or this is the year I work on developing internal confidence to deal with challenging situations. I mean, how much more appropriate for that can a pandemic be if you want to kind of right. roll with, with the uncertainties that hit you on any given morning? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so shifting gears here a little, um, mm -hmm. I want to get into your background a little bit. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I was rescued from drowning twice before the age of 10 wow. until I finally learned how to swim in a 25 yard country club pool. So <laughs> I was not at all an ocean type, but grew up in Memphis. Uh, all of my family was from Western Tennessee and then ended up um, going to school in Texas at Rice in Houston. But I did spend uh, I did spend a year abroad in high school in Australia, which kind of began to open up my world to seeing perspectives well beyond the private boys' school that I went to in Memphis. And it was really eye-opening at a very early age and has shaped the way I looked at my place in the world ever since. Got it. And so was, was staying active a big part of your family growing up? Absolutely not at all. I, <laughs> okay. No one in my family was an athlete. Um, my parents, when I was in middle school, had me try football and basketball, and it just, I don't think I made it through more than a, a, a semester, maybe. And after the failed swimming attempts and literally being rescued from drowning, they put me in swim lessons and that eventually progressed to being on a age group swim team, which also was a horrible experience. I was the worst, worst swimmer on the team. I, I struggled. I remember uh, in tears begging the coach to not make me swim the 200 freestyle because I really thought I would have to get out of the water and, and climb out on the side of the wall. But I really didn't, I didn't grow up with sports being a, a part of that, but I, I say I didn't grow up with it. For whatever reason, when I was 15 or so, I was, was in a, a store and saw an entry form for a, a 10K run. And for whatever reason, that just struck me. And so I started running on my own. I didn't do any sports in high school. I didn't run track. I didn't play any sports, but I started running on my own. So I would see the cross-country team out training, and I was out training for a 10K. And then when I lived in Australia, I ran my first marathon because I was with a host family that was the host father was a, a big runner and I began doing stuff in Australia running and in this marathon world that I thought was, I thought that was someone else's life. I didn't ever see myself as an athlete. It just was not something that I had been exposed to. And then once I, I finished that marathon when I was you know, 16, 17, 17, I guess, I thought, well, what else out there did I think wasn't me, but maybe could be? And that experience down there led to running other marathons in the U.S. when I finished up high school. And then that's about the time triathlons first started kind of popping up. This was um, you know, decades ago, uh, 83, 84, um, okay. when um, 
the Ironman in, in Kona was originally broadcast on Wide World of Sports. Uh, Dave Scott won his first Ironman. And so I got, I was fascinated with that, started training right after graduating from high school, ran into a woman who was a pro triathlete, just happened to be in Tennessee at the time. And I got, I got hooked, absolutely hooked. But it's a whole different type of racing back then. Entry fees were $35. I think I carried a toolkit on my bike and my bike was made out of steel, this ancient material that they used to make <laughs> bikes out of. Right, right. That's interesting. So it was something as, as small as, I think you said like a flyer in some store mm -hmm. for a 10K that kind of yeah. gave you that first athletic spark. Yeah, because so much, I think, when, when we're younger, and this was, you know, my teen years, there is nature and there is nurture. And if you're not really exposed to stuff or, or said, hey, try this, or it doesn't resonate, um, maybe I was a little bit of a black sheep. I don't know. But I, once I was exposed to it, it, it really hit. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And from being afraid of the ocean and not wanting to swim the 200 freestyle as a 12 year old it's kind of ironic where i am now and that yeah. i do so much around the world with being known as a swimmer and i keep telling people look this is not where it started for me i found this and then applied myself to it yeah and so when when did you find your your passion for the ocean like ocean safety and and ocean endurance sports Great question, because I never, I never really thought that the ocean was my place. When I started doing more running and ultra distance running, I can remember running trails in the mountains behind Boone, North Carolina, when I lived in that state and just loved it. I can, I can remember running at sunrise thinking, man, there is nowhere else I would rather be. This is just, this is it, you know, coming to the top of a bald and going, this is, this is amazing. But Years later, um, my professional career took me right outside of Santa Cruz, California. And I tell people I fell in with the wrong crowd. I uh, <laughs> was invited to join a, a one-mile swim along the beach in Monterey at a place called the Cement Ship State Park um, right there in Aptos. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'd, I'd bought a full-length wetsuit before I uh, moved over there because I thought everyone needed one of those if you're going to swim in the Pacific Ocean. And I remember running a mile down with everyone and then jogging, jogging back or running a mile down and then swimming back. And I, I had gotten separated from the group I went in with and stopped to look around for them. And all of a sudden these seal heads popped up all around me, but I didn't know there were seal around there. It looked like Labrador retrievers out there for someone who had just moved there from Ohio. <laughs> so I uh, list of things you tell the new guy from the Midwest um, that is in the water with you. And of course, you know, <laughs> Monterey Bay is known for great white sharks and a lot of wildlife. So it was a really inauspicious beginning to that ocean environment. And I remember being really intimidated by this cold, dark water. And over a couple of years, I, I ran into members of the South End Rowing Group, the Dolphin Club, uh, of which I'm actually a member that swims out of San Francisco Bay year round often no wetsuit regardless of water and air temperature and I was exposed to some marathon swimmers and realized that I I really kind of felt a calling to be in the ocean it was at a different level than anything I'd done on land but this was Santa Cruz California 2000 and 
2002, 2001, give or take a little bit. And okay. it, it just changed everything, absolutely changed everything. And with my original focus of just pursuing endurance events in the ocean, I ended up doing some long swims with National Marine Sanctuaries, the Marine Protected Area of NOAA, and really sharing stories of what's going on in our ocean, our physical connection, our emotional connection to water. And after doing that swim and talking about marine protected areas and their impact on our lives, I began traveling to other parts of the country and other parts of the world along those lines. And then a few years back, it kind of evolved again as I began working with NOAA and the National Weather Service on issues related to coastal safety, science, and conservation. And now that's kind of our uh, core area of work. Interesting. Okay. And prior to what you focus on now with, with Ocean Positive, um, you used to work in the corporate world for quite a number of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was very much a corporate, corporate person. I worked for, I mostly worked in retail brand development and, you know, building out, designing retail stores for some larger uh, companies. My, my first retail job was actually with company's not around anymore, but Performance Bicycle Shop out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That was back in the early 90s, back when there were 10 performance bike shops. And I worked for that company in a number of capacities and ended up being their uh, director of construction. So building and designing their retail stores for years. And then went on to work for companies like Abercrombie & Fitch, West Marine, overseeing you know, facility uh, development and brand maintaining the brand through the retail experience and then ran my own corporation doing project management and tenant improvement for various various clients around the country and you know i used to you know say that i was making the world safe to buy another t-shirt and <laughs> i was really good at, at handling diverse projects in different areas just finding a way to get from a to b um, but very much in the private sector part of this had always, you know, been involved as, I mean, I never uh, stopped being an endurance athlete. You know, I was running and doing all kinds of stuff while I was working in this capacity. Um, conservation and ocean issues. And I've, I've always had a soft spot for the Monterey Bay Aquarium and the Seafood Watch program. That was always part of my personal life and what I did. Um, but it didn't become kind of a, a personal and community global sort of mission until I really kind of stepped away from some of the corporate stuff. Okay. And what are some of the, the biggest takeaways or lessons learned for you from those years in the corporate world? I think that, you know, the, the main thing from the private sector, and, and we look at this is if you're going to develop a brand or a message or an image, it needs to be sustainable. And often in the corporate world, we're looking at financial sustainability and it needs to be profitable. You know, we look at corporate contribution for retail stores. We would run a, a five-year ROI on potential locations. We would look at the investment in doing certain remodel projects or new store construction and go, you know, how is this gonna move us forward? You know, who are we as a company and what do we want to be? How do we want to be perceived? What's the experience that we want people to have when they interact with our brand or walk into our stores? Um, but how do we accomplish all that in a sustainable 
manner. And this was back when that phrase just meant, we need to make sure we're in the black. And now that has evolved to more philanthropic sort of look, how is it sustainable for our oceans, for our environment, for our underserved members of our community? What are we doing to make our, not just our business sustainable, but our mission and core values sustainable? But that perspective right. of being very clear, what do we want to accomplish? Where do we want to be? And how do we get there? That mindset has probably been the most valuable thing to bring over into my now focus with the, the nonprofit foundation sort of world. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And so what, what made you finally decide to leave the private sector? And like what made that moment the right, the right time? It... Um, I don't know if it was the right time or not. I probably should have squirreled a little bit more in savings and was probably a little <laughs> bit naive when I said, I just need to step away from this. And it was, it was a dramatic mental shift for me, but the actuality of it, I still do some private sector consulting. Um, not much. I mean, I, I work for Red Bull and, and some other companies in a, in a professional capacity, but really not pursuing that and letting it kind of, you know, still working with existing clients, but letting that go. I had set a goal of swimming across, swimming across Monterey Bay, which is 25 miles. Uh, the body of water that scared the hell out of me years before became a, a passion project to, to swim across and see what was out there. And I was asked to do the swim after an ill-fated attempt. Uh, the first year I was asked to do the swim in conjunction with the Monterey Bay Aquarium and the launch of the Blue International Film Festival and Conservation Summit. So the intent was to do the swim and do it alongside the Monterey Bay Aquarium, their Seafood Watch program, as well as NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries, and really, really immerse myself in what was going on right out in the water behind where they were hosting the film festival and, and literally right off the back porch of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And that swim ended up being just epic. Probably the hardest thing I've ever done on a number of different reasons. There were jellyfish. Uh, one of my support boats uh, helped rescue an entangled blue whale while we were out there. Pods of dolphins like I'd never seen before. But the jellyfish were unbelievable. I don't think I took a stroke for 14 hours without seeing one. Or being stung by one. It was, it was grueling to say the least with the added pressure of, you know, standing up on the beach and it was, you know, we, we had a mission. We wanted to accomplish sharing what was going on in the waters right behind us. And I stood up on the beach after being in the water since three in the morning, four in the morning, something like that, and talking about the experience um, from a very emotional point of view of being immersed in feeling the currents, the tides, the wildlife. Why were there so many jellyfish? Why weren't there other fish that we would normally see? What was going on in this environment that's, that's known for great white shark research? There was a tagged great white named Frodo that was hanging around while I was out there. So it, it resonated. And I stood up on that beach and, and saw the impact we were having saw over the coming months what we could do in other places and said this is this is what I need to be doing and 
thought through it a little bit, um, but really dove in and immersed myself in it and had some really solid partners to help with that nudge. And the rest of it we made up as we went along. I, I feel that there, if you wait around too long for the best time to start something, that best time might not ever happen from an yep. objective standpoint. I went with a little bit of an objective sort of measure of some, but it was very much a subjective sort of, this is right, this felt right. And ironically, two days ago was the 10 year anniversary of that swim. And it feels like another, it feels like that was another life. I mean, in 10 years, I was looking back on where I've been, what I've done, and it just, it, it's still kind of beyond belief. I, I, I can't, I, I don't know how to articulate it. Yeah. And so how, how long was, or how far was the swim? Was it 25 miles? It's roughly 25 miles, uh, point to point, as the crow flies, if the crow is not being blown by currents and wind and storms. Right. Um, I was in the water for about 14 hours. Wow. So once you hit the water at four in the morning in Main Beach, Santa Cruz, and came ashore 14 hours later, uh, just east of the Monterey Bay Aquarium in Monterey, okay. right along uh, Cannery Row. Okay. And what was yeah. it like? What was it like to be stung by jellyfish? Like, have you ever been stung by jellyfish? Jellyfish before that swim? Like, uh, yeah, the year before actually. So the year before I tried to swim across and was stung for six, seven hours straight. And eventually my body, the venom from jellyfish, even those were not uh, box jellies. So there was not a, a immediate threat to life. Right. Uh, I'm not allergic to the stings, but the venom builds up in your system. That's why jellyfish have, you know, so many stingers. So if they, catch prey it's the volume of toxin that gets into okay. the prey that that has the the positive effect for the jellyfish the very negative effect for the prey and i had gotten stung so much that it was starting i don't normally get cold i mean i, I do get cold but i do really well in cold water i, I i've done non-wetsuit swims in alaska i normally don't wear a wetsuit unless there's some really strong reason i need to like jellyfish as it turns out later but i began to get cold i mean really cold and my body was just kind of shutting down because i had no protection whatsoever and was getting stung so much that they pulled me into the boat and i was barely able to even function and move um it passed but that was the first year i tried it and then i was invited by the aquarium and national Marine sanctuaries to come and try it it again so i thought that we had checked with their researchers that were tracking jelly blooms and it didn't seem like there were going to be any so i thought cool year two i trained harder i had prepared myself mentally for jellyfish things which there's no way to get around because i also had a thing about jellyfish i don't i mean they're stunning they're beautiful but they're they're also gelatinous and probably not really snuggly and so I knew that I was probably going to get stung again. And I had to kind of prepare for that. I felt that the first year I was overcome by the venom. I knew that was going to happen, but I also had kind of cracked mentally. I was having an amazing swim. The conditions were ideal, 
but I got so angry about the jellyfish. Like, why is this happening? I've prepared, we're, we're doing this for the right reasons. This isn't right. This isn't, this shouldn't be happening. And I was so caught up in that story that I had just cracked. And so the second year coming back, I had a different mindset and I had really kind of embraced whatever the ocean was going to offer me and move through it. Um, and a lot of this kind of comes from the mindfulness meditation practice that I can't change the physical conditions, but I can change my emotional response to them. That is always in my control. Yep. And so I approached the second year with a different emotional approach to what happened in the water. If I got stung, if I got hit by a shark, that was a physical thing to respond to and plan for. But getting run up by fear or the emotional side of things, that's what was different. And so I got stung. I get stung a lot. I can remember at one point being halfway across and there's jellyfish all around me. And for some reason, the, the way the sun was hitting the water, there was a, a ray, like a stingray, just hovering in the water, surrounded by all these just massive jellyfish. I mean, like huge two foot diameter heads. And I, I remember looking over going, that's stunning. I mean, like it, it was beautiful, this ray, just unaffected by it all, just hovering right next to me. And I was so captivated by the experience that that really, whereas the year before I was angry about all the jellyfish being there and why is this happening to me? The year that I made it across, I, I recognized and embraced the unique opportunity that every stroke afforded me. And, you know, whales, I remember looking up one time and seeing the largest pod of dolphins I'd ever seen. I mean, like it just, it, from eye level at the water, it, it spanned my horizon. Um, so I had all this going on, on above and around me. Then I'd look down and the jellyfish were still there. They had just submerged. But the last two or three miles of the swim, I was getting, all the jellyfish had been pushed up towards the beach where we were finishing. And I was getting stung in the mouth, face, even though I had some protection on my body, it was, it was excruciating. I, my mouth for three days was white, like it'd been burned because I, I kept getting them splashed in my mm. mouth. It was, it was excruciating. Um, but I was so driven by purpose and just moving through the experience, but it is, it was not like anything I've ever experienced before. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done just because of the, that, the pain was not like anything I'd experienced and it was ongoing and it was not going to go away. And it was 14 hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. And so you've mentioned it a couple times now already. Um, so um, what is the mindfulness meditation um, practice that you've done for, for all these years? Yeah. So my wife's a PhD social scientist from Penn and her original research, she studied uh, adolescent brain development and the neuroscience of the brain and our response to emotionally charged situations. Her work originally was looking at um, juvenile justice system and how do you give individuals the tools to change the way they respond to their environment or to situations. Because often the wrong response can end us can, can put us into to bad situations, whether it's in jail or just in a compromised interaction with someone. 
So she looked at mindfulness meditation as an intervention tool to give individuals, both adolescents and adults, the tools that really kind of rewired your brain so that you can better respond in emotional charge situations, you know, decisions based on facts, not emotional responses. It is what it is. This is how it is right now. And so I follow a, a 30 minute guided mindfulness meditation practice. If I do it every day, I feel and perform much better. Um, minimum for me is three or four days a week. So I tell myself I'm going to sit down for 28 to 32 minutes. I have a, a teacher that's, um, he posts meditations online. So I literally grab them off of a podcast and it's a guided mindfulness meditation that is part of my training as, as surely as a paddle session or a swim session or a, you know, a, a tempo track workout. And that has, I was always kind of hardwired to kind of embrace the experience but I've noticed that this practice on top of my own kind of innate, the way I was hardwired has really kind of allowed me to take things to the next level because so much of what I do in the ocean, you can get hit with anything. I mean, it's the environment is constantly changing. It's not like on land. I mean, literally the environment I'm on is, is moving underneath me. You add in the fact that, um, meteorological changes, weather, storms, which direction the wind's blowing from, how strong it is. And there's a tide change every six hours. So, and then there's wildlife that I'm going to hit. So I have to be really engaged and make decisions based on, okay, this is happening right now. What do I do? I've been caught offshore when sudden fog came in. That's really scary because all of a sudden now I can't see the beach. And if I swim the wrong direction, I'm going out to sea. And so calming myself down, going, okay, remembering the direction the swell was coming from, listening intently to what's on land and navigating back out of situations where, you know, I also train ocean lifeguards. I am an ocean lifeguard for Upper Township Beach Patrol. And there's nothing like a, a situation in which you're charging out to help someone. You need to make good decisions because now their life and yours depends on it. We tell lifeguards that the most important thing you can bring into the ocean with you on a rescue is a calm state of mind, not a rescue tube, not a board. You need to be the one that has a calm state of mind to make good decisions. So that's how it's impacted me. But that ongoing practice has allowed me to make the most of whatever I might've been given genetically. Right, right, okay. And going back to the swim, what, what are your biggest takeaways from accomplishing that swim? Biggest takeaways? I, I cringe every time I see an article written that says an athlete or a surfer conquered a wave or conquered the ocean or conquered a challenge. Um, I hate that word. I, I think that the biggest takeaway was I... I was living in Northern California. I, I embraced the ocean. I immersed myself in the experience. I was allowed to move through it by combining everything that I had trained to do, everything that I knew how to do, the crew that I had with me, my wife who was on the boat the entire time, 
there was no conquering. There is no conquering a mountain. There is no conquering the ocean. We get to immerse ourselves in an experience that is bigger than us. And anyone who thinks that they conquer the biggest wave on the planet or they conquer the most challenging swim, that mindset goes against virtually everything that we work to do and inspire in the world. Interesting. Okay. If anything, I might have conquered my own fear. I might have conquered my own perceptions of my limitations. Right. And I might have conquered whatever was inside of me, but to apply that to conquering conquering the ocean, really, you can do that. So I see. Yeah. That 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 makes sense. You can't really like yeah, conquer the the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, that big wave that you might conquer off of Nazaree, the next day is probably going to trash a couple of jet skis in the process of getting back and say, no, you, 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 didn't, you didn't quite level <laughs> us out yet. Right, right. And so um, now I want to get into a little bit more of your endurance career. What are, so what are surf life-saving sports? Like, what does that entail? Yeah, I didn't really grow up with much exposure to this in Memphis. So surf life-saving sports, the best description I've heard was the tagline they used at the World Championships in the Netherlands back in 2016. Surf life-saving sports, they called them the most heroic of sports. So ocean lifeguards and those that guard dynamic open water environments, surf life-saving sports grew out of a need to create challenges that would duplicate situations you could be in during an actual rescue. So disciplines in surf lifesaving include multiple craft and multiple distances and ways of, of moving across the water from the beach. Um, surf skis are a big craft that's part of what we call uh, an Ironman or an Ocean Man that predates Kona. Um, surf ski is a 21, 20 foot long kind of kayak uh, that's about 20 inches wide. I, I refer to it, it's like riding a unicycle on single track trails during an earthquake. Um, but it's also the fastest craft in the water. Um, it's incredible to get in and out through surf, um, but very much a, a different sort of skill demand and discipline. So surf life-saving sports for craft include dory boats, surf skis, prone paddle boards, um, many of the swims will use these big fiberglass fins, rescue tubes. There are parts of surf life-saving sports that are solo in which you do our version of an Ironman, which would be um, short duration segments of each of the different discipline, craft disciplines. There are also parts of racing that are team focused, where you're literally swimming out to rescue someone and paddling back in together. There's also stuff on the sand, 2K runs, 1K runs, beach sprints. So it encompasses everything that an ocean lifeguard might be called upon to do in a rescue scenario. And then at the international level, there's also pool parts of surf life-saving sports, although it's more the pool side of life-saving, not really surf, but life-saving sports where, you know, I grew up in a formal swimming environment at Rice University and swam distance freestyle and went back and forth a lot. But in in the pool version of life-saving sports, there are barricades in the water. You're swimming with massive fiberglass fins. You're pulling a weighted mannequin 
off the bottom of a three meter deep pool and then holding it with your hand and swimming back 50 meters. It's some of the funnest, most challenging pool stuff I've ever done in my life. And being kind of, kind of burned out on swimming another mile for time or another 500 for time, it has reinvigorated my love for getting in the pool and training. So surf lifesaving sports, you don't see as much of in the US, um, but I get the chance to compete and train a lot in Australia and in other parts of the world where it is huge. Uh, primetime sport level in Australia. Interesting. Yeah, I've never even heard of it until I started doing research no. for this interview. Yeah, yeah. Most people have not. And I, I've been really lucky. There's an iconic long distance event called the Coolangatta Gold in Australia that I had first heard of when I was living there in the early 80s. And I just dreamed of doing but was never I was in Tennessee, I wasn't exposed to this and have had the opportunity to complete it three times and actually medaled in the master's division the last time I competed. And it was so far beyond anything I thought I would ever do as a, a purely sport discipline. But that's the extreme, the longer distance stuff. The rest of what we do is over in 10 to 15 minutes. So someone who used to be ultra endurance to master a sprint power technique uh, skill set for surf lifesaving sports, which also rewards ocean wisdom more than VO2 max often. Okay, got it. And is that Kulan Kulangata event, is that considered like the, I don't know, like the Kona of surf lifesaving? Yeah, I would say so. Kulangata mm -hmm. gold, there are shorter races, there's world championships and stuff, but Kulangata is iconic in the sport. It is like Kona. It is like the Hawaiian Ironman. It's mm -hmm. Kona. And what does that competition entail? So the Kulangata Gold encompasses, it's evolved a little bit over the years, uh, but the more recent permutation, I'm, I'm going to get the distances a little bit wrong. I think they've even adjusted them a little bit in the last couple of years. Starts off with a surf ski uh, that's roughly 25 kilometers long. Uh, then you have a two mile run. So you go 25 kilometers up beach, out in the ocean. Most of the race takes place offshore. So there's no aid stations. There's not a curb to sit down on. You're navigating whatever the ocean's got. So it's 25K on the surf ski, two mile run barefoot up and over a hill down to where the swim starts. Then it's roughly a 3,200 uh, 3, meter swim. Then you come back and get on a paddle board for a roughly an 8K paddle. And then you finish that and it's a final 7k give or take run back to the start so you you basically surf ski up 25 kilometers or about 25 kilometers there's a little out and back section and then you start navigating your way back to the start line via run swim paddle and run again and it takes the winners probably about four hours uh took me about five um pretty it's not it will never have the kind of numbers that Kona will just because it's such a uh, kind of a fringe sort of sport and requires uh, a lot of access, a lot of um, specialty training and equipment to be able to take it on. Right, right. Yeah, it's really cool though. It's different. Oh, I uh, I loved it. It's mm -hmm. there are not many races that I've done multiple times, but that is one of them. I just I kept. I haven't been able to go back in in the last couple of years. COVID kind of kept me away this year, but. 
I love it. I would, I would do it many more times still. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. So fast forward to today now, um, where, where do you focus most of your time on? Most of my time now, uh, you're talking about with our foundation work or with my athletic career? Could you, uh, um, with the foundation work. So over the last three years we've worked, I'm in the middle, our foundation and, and me personally work with NOAA and the National Weather Service under a five-year cooperative research and development agreement on coastal safety science and conservation. How do we improve the message for impact to protect our shores? Kind of the goal is how do we keep lifeguards dry? If people make good decisions and don't find themselves in, in dangerous situations in the ocean, everyone's safer if they're safe and the lifeguards stay on the stand. And, and every time someone goes into the water, there's a potential for things to go wrong. And over the last three years, we worked specifically on an innovative new series with NOAA called the Wave Safe series. We went on the road for a month and filmed specifically in geographically unique areas. The idea was this was our this was NOAA's one of our first times to ever look at the geographic and demographic specifics of the dangers and hazards on specific coastlines. You've got log rolls and sneaker waves in the Pacific Northwest, as well as cold water. You've got large surf anywhere, but Southern California, Northern California are known for large surf that can pummel someone if they're in the water or knock them off of a cliff into dangerous situations if they don't mean to be there. We've got piers, jetties, currents, rips, uh, weather, in American Samoa, you've got remote beaches with no lifeguards. So we hit the road with a film crew and came up with five minute pieces that talk about specific hazards and how to make individual choices to keep yourself and others safe. And this series took, was three years in development, finally went live uh, towards the end of last year. And then this year we had planned a lot of activation and feet in the sand uh, stuff and then obviously COVID hit. So our main focus now is how do, we, how do we get the word out and protect people because lifeguards are, are spread pretty thin this year. So right now right. We, we did a, um, a webinar a while back that has created some components that are gonna be other standalone pieces to this wave safe library. that really boils down to three main takeaways. Number one is respect the ocean. People may or may not always be able to read a rip current or read the currents. Even lifeguards, it takes a while to really recognize the subtleties of what's going on. But if you always respect the ocean and know that you're not gonna conquer it, um, that will allow people to be more informed, make better choices. Respect the ocean, stay situationally aware at the shore. Weather changes, tides change, currents change. You see lifeguards on the East Coast move their stands up and down the sand because the tide is, is causing different dynamics on the beach and they're having to stay, you know, six foot tide change. They're moving. It's a dynamic environment. So respect the ocean, stay situationally aware of the shore. And the third and most important is what we call take 10 or protect yourself to save others. Tragically, it's often second victim drownings where there's a loss of life. So someone's in trouble someone else just charges in to help them out, wanting to be a good Samaritan. It triggers an emotional response to take care of others. And tragically, often the rescuer ends up 
being the one that drowns or there's multiple loss of life um, because they weren't prepared. You won't see a lifeguard charge into the water without first signaling to others for help, whistling to the other stands, grabbing a rescue can. So the take 10 is an emotional pause for 10 seconds to notify someone else, look for something that floats, try to find ways to protect yourself so you don't put yourself in a dangerous situation without the tools to back up and the training to not have a tragic loss of life. So our focus now is how do we spread the word for that? And, and you've given me a great platform and then uh, developing tools that can be posted and shared between beach patrol agencies and people that are hosting beachgoers for whether it's real estate rentals or hotels or chambers of commerce or various municipalities and agencies from you know, state parks to NOAA and the Weather Service. Awesome. And what is, um, what is NOAA for, for the people listening? National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, okay. They fall under the Department of Commerce. So NOAA is the one that tracks the hurricanes. They tell you what the weather is doing, what it's going to do. Um, they are the ones tracking everything that's going on in our air, land, and, and water to keep us safe. Um, if you're inland, they may be tracking tornadoes and severe lightning storms. If you're on the ocean, they may be tracking hurricanes or tsunamis. All that falls under uh, NOAA. They even have their own fleet. The NOAA Corps is a fleet of research and support vessels. Um, it's a massive organization that really keeps us all safe and informed if we're the minute we step outside our door. Got it. Okay. And so how did that opportunity come about to work with them um, and do the Wave Safe series? I, when I first started doing the long distance swims, I, I met people with the National Marine Sanctuary in Monterey Bay. And the swim was such a unique opportunity to share real time what was going on in this marine protected area of Monterey Bay that it got kicked into uh, Washington, D.C. and Silver Spring, where uh, National Marine Sanctuaries is based. And I began working with them um, and then visiting other sanctuaries after the swim. So once I was working within NOAA at the time, the National Marine Sanctuary Program, which deals with marine protected areas, um, we were in American Samoa one time on a conservation initiative, but we were joined by a representative from the National Weather Service that was doing work on tsunamis. And then a few years ago, I got a call from someone in Weather Service and asked if I would be interested in coming over and collaborating with them and really looking more at, you know, the personal engagement with the safety, the science, and the conservation. And that's what kind of opened the door. So I I've been really lucky and you talk about navigating outside the box and being open for new opportunities when they arise and being prepared for them. I knew that I, I wanted to share with others the opportunities that embracing the ocean and, and moving into stuff that I might have been a little afraid of at first, but challenging myself has opened up tremendous opportunities and, and given the opportunity with the weather service to impact how others can share in part of that at whatever level makes sense for them whether they're jumping into a, a lake in illinois or whether they're jumping into the ocean in the pacific northwest or american samoa in the village of Aunu'u. how do they get to have the same type of positive safe experiences that 
continue to shape my life every day. Right. It sounds like this, this, this Monterey Bay swim that you did was essentially the, the kickoff to your professional commitment to ocean safety. Absolutely. I think that, I think that if we pay attention and we reflect back on it, we can see everyone has those pivot moments that you can look back on and go, the course of my life will never be the chain, never be the same after this. I stood up on that beach in Monterey Bay. I looked at my wife and said, life is not going to be the same. This is, this is going to be completely different from this point forward. And I probably could have said, nope, this is a one-off and just gone right back into doing what I was doing. Um, maybe I was hungry for the change or maybe I felt that I, it, it was a calling. But yes, that absolutely changed everything. And it happened again when I went to American Samoa uh, a year and a half later to do a swim. Something about that culture and community and the spirit of Fa'a Samoa, it it changed my life yet again. It, it took a connection to the ocean and embedded it in, you know, a culture that is connected to an island and ocean and has been for 3000 years. And, and my experience with the Samoans kind of took the dipping my toe in the water in Monterey Bay to a whole nother level, spirit, family, soul, uh, as far as community, special place and ocean yeah and and talk to me about that work that you did in american samoa um i watched a, a short film that i think was on your website it was really cool yeah um so oh, thank you yeah yeah it so american samoa i went down there just to do some outreach there were uh challenges with some, some loss of life with drowning and there was no lifeguard agency there and i went down there to do a swim between a couple islands that no one had ever done before uh, from the island of Aonu'u uh, back to Pongo Pongo Harbor, which is on the main island of Tutuila. And I also did some connects with the kids while I was there. And just, I, I connected to a part of myself or found a part of myself through that culture that I didn't know existed. And I then, and, and continue now, although I, I can't visit there right now because of COVID restrictions, began working well beyond the 10 days I was supposed to be there to do outreach. We, we formed our foundation because of American Samoa, because when I stood up on the beach in Pongo Pongo, the governor at the time asked if I would make a commitment to help share what I know to the Samoans to help them have the same sort of experience and confidence in the water that I had, and that has become a life's commitment. And I began working under the Department of Commerce a Community Services Block Grant, which is why the foundation exists, so we could work through agencies like that to do stuff in the villages um, and throughout the community. I have had the opportunity to work with and train the Department of Public Safety, Fire Department, Police Department, Marine Rescue. Um, but what's really special is I was given um, a tie standing in American Samoa. Um, my Samoan title is Wila Osami from the village of Aonu'u. So I have a, a chief title in American Samoa. So I get to speak as a Samoan and work within the villages and within the Samoan cultural side to help implement positive changes 
for the individuals, for the village, and for the community as a whole. So I, I really feel Samoan. I have these two sides. Like when I go down there, I, I'm not Bruckner, I'm Wheela. And everything I do is focused on, on helping my village and others in, on the island. And the series came out recently. One of the things that we were focused on is we have, uh, we filmed in American Samoa. There were pieces done specifically to address challenges in that area. And the first thing that I insisted on is there is a Samoan translation to the WaveSafe series. Um, so it is, of all the things we, we could have done, uh, there is a Samoan piece for American Samoa. And we continue to try to develop the safety of everyone visiting the islands or living there as well as building economic capacity around being able to do more in the oceans and along the coast. Wow, that's, that's really cool. And yeah. so how has that whole experience been working in the American Samoa? Like how has it impacted your life since you began working with them? Well, I, I wear it on my sleeve now. So the, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I literally carry my heart on my sleeve for American Samoa and it has, it has given a cultural context to what I do and a deeper meaning. Like I said, the American Samoans have been on that island for 3,000 years. It is, Fa'a Samoa refers to kind of the culture, the, the feel, the spirit of, of Samoa. You know, we talk about, you know, Southern tradition or, or a feel of a certain area in the U.S. And you know, that's evolved over 100, 200 years, but the Samoan culture goes back 3,000. When I'm there on island, what I've learned from, from them and then what I get the opportunity to share in other parts of the world is staggering. We would all be, in my opinion, well served if we embraced a connection to ocean and our village and community and culture the way the Samoans do. Um, I think it's a, a pretty positive and powerful way to live. Yeah. And so what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see as it relates to ocean safety? Biggest misconceptions? Um, that the only thing that's of danger to you is a rip current. Um, and often rip currents may end up being what puts someone in trouble but a lack of respect for the ocean. Often people might eventually be rescued from a rip current, but they probably entered the water under small craft advisories long before they eventually found their way into a rip current. That the biggest challenge is many of us who don't spend a lot of time in the ocean, who have not navigated out through even waist high waves, much less chest high, don't understand what a 10 mile an hour wind that might feel refreshing in an August afternoon in Tennessee can create really dangerous conditions on the beach in, in Strathmere. And how do we help people understand in something that they can, that they're familiar with? We talk about common sense really only works if there's common knowledge or common experience from which to build that. 
I work with a lot of adults that are learning to swim kind of for the first time. They got a triathlon goal or they want to do an open water swim. And they're used to looking at their bike computer and judging the speed at which things move past them. They know how far they've gone. They know how hard they're going. If I tell you to go and run four quarters on the track at two minute pace or 130 pace, you can probably hit that spot on. If I tell you to go out into the ocean and swim 100 meters at a 115 pace or a 130 pace or a 10 pace, many people's perceived exertion and what's going on for them in the water just doesn't equate to a common experience on land. And right. my experience in, in talking safety, even to, to youth, is we message in a lot of stuff that, well, just stay calm and don't go into the water if you don't know how to swim. Well, what does knowing how to swim mean to you? I would suggest that some people may say, I know how to swim, but how does their perception of knowing how to swim equate to mine where I swam division one college and I swam 28 miles across Monterey Bay? Does knowing how to swim as in jumping into a backyard pool and getting across to the other side, is that knowing how to swim or does being dropped into 58 degree water when you're fishing off the end of a pier, being able to make a good decision and then swim through crashing surf 200 meters back to the beach, is that knowing how to swim? So that disconnect between the reality of what you're physically going to encounter and equating that to your experience and physical capacity is probably the biggest source to misconceptions and, and deadly situations. Yeah, it's, it's very, very situational. I know for me, I can relate to this personally. Like I, my family and I go to Barbados pretty much every year. And, mm -hmm. you know, as I'm sure you probably know, there's, you know, it's a big surf, surf spot. A lot of surfers go there and right. there can be shore break. That's honestly can get bigger than the waves that the surfers are, are surfing. And you'll right. see, yeah. you'll see tourists. Um, I've seen many times tourists, you know, go into the water and they get, they just get smacked onto the beach and it's like, Oh my God, like that, like they got one, up, but like very, very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the drills we do the most of on, on the beach here and it's probably the case in other beaches is uh, spinal cord injuries, you know, shore break people not being prepared and understanding that, it's not just what you see on top of the water, but what, what you see on top of the water might indicate as to what's underneath the water. There are both hidden dangers that some of us know to expect and look for, and those that people have no experience with whatsoever. But what you're describing, you know, the, the power of a wave, spinal cord injuries are just traumatic injuries are, are staggering. I mean, my, um, my mother was walking in, knee-deep, waist-deep surf, uh, holding her, her husband's hand, and they got hit by a wave, and he held on really tight to her, and it ended up tweaking her shoulder to the point where she had to get injections and had to have it treated by a physical therapist because just him trying to hold on to her and keep her safe wrenched her shoulder just from, you know, waist-high surf. Um, it's a lot stronger than most people think, and it doesn't take much. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean to, for you to be a waterman? That's a really good question. 
And I think that as you see retail marketing label a lot of things as Waterman this or Waterman that, to me, the answer is very simple. What we do in the ocean, what we do in the ocean makes us athletes. What we do for the ocean and for our communities makes us watermen or waterwomen. It's that simple. That surfing, swimming, paddling, winning races, winning contests, pulling off amazing moves, that's me being an athlete. That's someone else being an athlete. That's someone being an elite level, world leading, world beating athlete. But when you're doing stuff for the ocean and for the communities, in my mind, that's what makes someone a waterman or a waterwoman. It's not just the in, it's the for. Got it. Okay. And then what's, what's your ultimate vision for, for your nonprofit? ultimate vision. I think that if, if we look back at our body of work and we have created opportunities around the world for people to share a positive, safe, ongoing experience with the water, either physically being in it, whether it's once a week or part of their daily life, that will be a success. We, we focus on a lot of the safety and science and conservation side with NOAA and the Weather Service. We also work with um, helping people with uh, specific uh, spinal cord injuries or physical challenges get in the water. So we take what we know about being in the water and try to make that accessible to people with a wide range of physical or intellectual uh, challenges or abilities. Oh, and cool. at the same time, making whether someone's an accomplished triathlete and they want to get over a fear of the ocean and big water and wildlife, if we look back at our body of work and we see people in the water having positive experiences, if we've had a sustainable impact on the well-being and maybe economic health of an area because we created a opportunity for them to embrace their natural environment, uh, as a way to serve and help others as well as provide for, for them, then that will be, that is a success. And I think that there is not a, an end goal. It's, it's a mission and a core set of values that we keep working towards. Awesome. That's great. And so getting into these last few questions here, um, yeah. what does your daily routine look like? My daily routine, actually, I just moved into a new house, as I shared uh, yesterday. So my, my daily routine the last two days has not been my daily uh, ocean athlete routine. But uh, typically, I, I'm up. I, uh, I grab, a, uh, grab a, a goose troop waffle and a Red Bull, flip through some emails and kind of get my bearings on the day. I check the weather and surf and tide forecast and make a decision for an early morning workout. This morning I went and paddled um, in the bay. Um, that may end up being a trail run not too far away from here or a beach run or a multidiscipline workout. So I usually go and hit the water or, or earth for about an hour, hour and a half or so in the morning. And then I, I settle in. I'm, I'm working on a Red Bull project right now. So I've got most of my day um, kind of committed to well, kind of professional life or foundation work. Uh, building stakeholders and engagements with NOAA. We've got a new, uh, we've partnered with a, 
a great company, Ocean Cycle and CPI Car Group, we've got our newest wave-safe posters are made out of ocean-bound plastics. So we're really excited that we can uh, protect communities and protect the oceans with one, one stone. Um, so I'll, I'll spend several hours during the day uh, at the computer or on the phone and then usually head out for an afternoon workout, which is usually a little bit more mellow uh, and often go with my wife. I'll swim while she paddles next to me. It's just nice to kind of close our day out doing that. And, and right now I'm back teaching a class at the University of the Sunshine Coast in their occupational therapy program. So um, once or twice a week, I'm usually teaching a Zoom class in Australia, which is late evening for me so I can hit them in the morning. So because I do stuff in other parts of the world, I'm often on the computer or on a, a Zoom call late into the evening. So I try to be gentle with myself in the morning sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. And as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? My driving force has, when I ran that marathon when I was 16 years old, I did something that I had never envisioned myself doing. It is not how I saw myself. And finishing that at 16, my driving force, what other preconceptions do I have about who I am and what I can do that I need to put aside, that I need to shatter? I didn't see myself as an upper level corporate executive type. I never saw myself at a private prep boys school in Memphis, Tennessee, as an ocean advocate and athlete traveling the world in, in places I'd never even heard of before. My driving force is to not be limited by what I think I can do or who I think I am and be willing and ready to embrace something better. That an incredible opportunity may be just beyond where I think I'm limited. Um, Jacques Cousteau had a quote that was circulating when I did my Monterey Bay swim that I've adopted. It's actually on the back of my business cards. It says, when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to live an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. Interesting. Okay. I like that quote. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of advice or wisdom would you like to leave the people listening as it relates to taking care of our oceans? When it comes to taking care of our oceans, respect the ocean. We came up with those three words with the Wave Safe series for multiple reasons, because respecting the ocean can keep you safe, it can keep others safe, and it can save, it can protect and save our shores and the special places that we like to visit. Respect the ocean and the trash you carry out and what you do when you look around the beach and, and carry stuff away from you that you see there and your daily choices and the seafood that you decide to buy or not buy. Are you taking your reusable bag into the grocery? Not because there's a sign in the parking lot that says you have to, but because that's a way that you reconnect to the feeling you have once a week when you're at the beach. Respect the ocean. Find ways to fold that in to every choice you make throughout every day, whether 
whether you're listening to seagulls out your back deck like I am, or whether you're in the middle of the mountains in Colorado, respect the ocean because it touches all of our lives, even if we don't get to see it out our back door. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Awesome. Brockner, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Chase. And really, if anyone has any questions, we're looking for ways to share and reach more people in person or virtually now. So hopefully uh, tell people not to, not to hesitate to reach out. And I'm pretty easy to find on Google as well. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. bcoceanpositive.org will land anyone okay. on our foundation site. Okay. Is that the best place to go if people want to follow yeah. kind of what you're up to yeah. and learn more about your nonprofit? Yeah bcoceanpositive.org. And if they respond to one of the email connections through there, it'll land uh, in my inbox. Awesome. You all can also visit my website, traceroza.com and follow me on Instagram at traceroza4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.